This is a KTF Press podcast. I remember, you know, growing up walking on the street and just having this feeling of like eyes being on me and getting cat called and just wanting to disappear. And having that same feeling kind of triggered in the context of the church was just so, so horrifying to me. I just so wish that as a young woman growing up in church, that they they would have done a better job of supporting and empowering women to protect ourselves. I feel like instead all that we were taught was to cover up and to not be too enticing. Welcome to Shake the Dust, leaving colonized faith for the kingdom of God. I'm Susie LaHood. And I'm Sai Hoekstra. Today, we're going to be talking about women in the church, uh, giving Susie an opportunity to talk about some of the times that she's been, you know, felt discriminated against or empowered uh, being in church spaces. And we're going to talk about some of the, the systemic and interpersonal factors that are at play when it comes to uh, patriarchy in the church. Just because of some scheduling issues, uh, Jonathan Walton is not with us this week. We are going to have some content warnings for this conversation in the show notes. I'm not going to say them now because we haven't had the conversation yet. So I don't know um, what all is going to be uh, content warning worthy, but those they will be in the show notes if you want to check. Please remember to take a look at ktfpress.com and consider subscribing to our publication. You'll get our weekly newsletter where the three of us send media suggestions for your discipleship and political education as we leave colonized faith. You'll get access to all the bonus episodes of this show and support all our work on writing, podcasting, book publishing, and keeping our material accessible for our disabled readers and listeners. Also, please write in to shakethedust at ktfpress.com with any questions you have about this episode or any other episode you've heard. Our next episode is going to be a season finale question and answer session. We've already gotten some great questions and we're excited to hear more. Write in or send us a voicemail as an attachment. Okay, so let's start with this, Susie, if you don't mind. Um, I'm, I'm falsely asking your permission, like we haven't talked about if it's okay to start with this ahead of time. <laughs> but um, Permission granted. Yeah, thank you so much. We have talked a couple times on this show, or you have said a couple times on this show, that you growing up sometimes felt like you were a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God uh, because you were a woman. Can you just expand a little bit on uh, why you felt that way? Yeah, I mean, so it, it's something that I feel like is just kind of in in the air that you breathe growing up in, in white evangelical spaces as a young woman, uh, that just the, the subtle messages that, that you pick up or that you're kind of created to be in sort of a, a servile position. Um, and the way that I sort of justified that for myself theologically as I got older, because that this was something I very much bought into. And, you know, on top of this, I was very much um, into complementarian theology. And, and, and the way I justified it again was, you know, Christ came in, in a servant role. And so as a woman, like it should be okay that that's, that's what I'm created for. That's what I'm supposed to do, which is a really beautiful concept, except that I was actually using that to justify um, a lower view of myself Mm. that I, I had imbibed and and that was presented to me continuously in subtle and not so subtle ways. And so the difference there is that 
Christ coming as, as a servant is, is not that Christ is worth less, <laughs> if anything. Christ is the God that we worship. And so that the way that that was then lived out by myself was that I, I really believed that I was worth less than the people that I was serving and that I, I was never meant to have a role that would in any way put me at the center or in the spotlight. And it was because I didn't deserve to be there and I didn't have the gifting that that required. Um, and because it would have been wrong for me to do something like that. And so it's, it's subtle ways that you're kind of, you know, you get your hand slapped if you're any hint of you having authority over a man or, you know, heaven forbid, trying to teach a man in any way. And and specific ways that I saw this growing up. So my parents, as missionaries, they would travel around to a lot of different churches and they would be, you know, speakers at conferences and things like that. They were sort of on that circuit. And and I was always really proud as a little girl seeing my mom get up on stage and share. It was usually my dad would be invited to share and give a sermon and he would preach and then he would invite my mom up and, and she would essentially give another sermon. And she would, my mom to this day is an incredibly gifted speaker and communicator and storyteller and just a real force of nature. And, and again, it always, it always made me feel so proud to see her doing that. But I remember one conference that we attended. It was a, a college ministry conference. And at one of the sessions, they were getting feedback from the students. And this, this like 19, 20 year old kid stood up and chastised my mom in front of everyone for Gosh. thinking that she had the right to stand up on stage and, you know, teach any man anything. And, <sighs> you know, my mom, to her credit, was wise and mature enough to not take the bait and to, to bounce back from it pretty quickly and actually finish the conference in the way that she had had been requested to lead. But for me, I cried myself to sleep that night. And I'll wow. never forget the shame that I felt by association because he, you know, used the Bible to justify this really inappropriate takedown of my mom as a woman who, you know, how dare she think that she could do that. And so it's just really, um, it's things like that. And then I remember in college, I was a student leader in, in my campus ministry and um, was actually chosen to be one of the two. Every year they would have a, a guy and a girl share kind of the final sort of parting words to the graduating class at, at our weekly meeting. And I was I was selected by my peers to be the one to give the final message. And And I remember a woman that I deeply respected kind of hinting to me that she felt like maybe it wasn't quite appropriate for me to be doing that. Um, even as a college student speaking to a room of other college students, she was sort of hinting to me that she felt like maybe that wasn't my place to be standing Just up there. solely because you're getting up and, and like talking at all. You're not like giving a sermon. You're not filling the role of a pastor. You're just talking to your friends, basically. Yep. Yeah. Because it was a mixed room. It was men and women. And up until that point, you know, my role as a student leader was mostly, you know, leading other girls in Bible studies and stuff like that. But yeah, the implication was that that would have been inappropriate. So like a couple things I would want to point out there. One is, A, in that case in college, like no man said anything to you, right? It, it is, it's another woman enforcing like a patriarchal structure against you, which happens all the time in church spaces, right? This it, This is something that you know, Kristen Dumais has said a few times, she was the, who was on our podcast, I just like 
she's just someone I've heard say this, but it it's it is something that requires the participation of women in order to work in church spaces, which which is why it's so threatening, I think, to a lot of people who hold complementary and other views um, to uh, to have women who who reject it openly in church. Complementary, by the way, for those of you who aren't familiar, is is a is a just a phrase from late twentieth century created by some white evangelical Christian men who wanted a new kind of way of framing their stance about why it was that women shouldn't teach in the church. And we'll, we'll talk about this more, like shouldn't teach or hold certain positions of authority. And the argument that we'll get into a little bit more later is always that men and women, you know, it's not supposed to be a hierarchical structure. It's just men and women have different giftings and are called to different roles in the church and um, like preaching and teaching and being in roles of authority is not what women are called to. There's obvious problems with that, but we'll talk about it later. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but the other thing was like, you, you mentioned that your dad was like the, the one who was mostly invited to speak in a lot of these church places. And then he would have to invite your mom up after giving the sermon. And I think you've told me before that it, he would have to frame it in terms of like, she just wants to get up and share some thoughts or like, you know what I mean? Like something like that, that isn't, she wants to get up and preach or teach you anything. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So, so I think that's just another, like, that's one of the subtler ways that, you know, sure, a woman got up and spoke in these churches, but a man had to speak first, give the official sermon and then invite the woman up on stage. And it's, a, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times that's how it plays out. You You have also, you know, you've talked to me about how, Oftentimes, for a lot of women, church is actually the least empowering place in their lives. Can you explain what that means a little bit? Yeah. So this is another thing that just, it can be so confusing living in a world where, um, you know, you'll have women who are professionals, uh, doctors and lawyers and academics and really qualified women who are out in the world doing really important things and and leaders in the workplace. But then you come to church and again, the implication is don't, you know, make sure you're not taking on any inappropriate leadership role. Make sure you're not stepping on anyone's toes, stepping into the spotlight too much. Um, and it just, it, it makes it feel like the place, at least I have certainly felt that the place that I'm often least empowered is in the church and in Christian settings. It also makes it so difficult to just kind of find your voice, which I think is so scary for the church because imagine the amount of prophetic power that we are silencing right. by not allowing women to speak out in those ways. And and it I mean, there have been times where I felt like there's almost like almost like a stranglehold for me in terms of trying to figure out how much I can speak and if I can even if I even have the courage or know how to speak in those spaces. Um, there's like this code of, of topics that you have to stick to. And, um, and it's just, it's really strange to have to exist in those two different worlds. And then it makes me so sad too, because imagine, you know, I talk about the loss of prophetic power and leadership potential that the church is losing, but also the church is going to hemorrhage people, period. If that's what folks are seeing and experiencing, you're just going to lose women if that's not the place where they can thrive and live to the fullness of who God's created them to be. And they can do that everywhere else. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. The prophetic voice part, I think, is something that's important for me, because I was also, I grew up where there was always some amount of the theology being taught that like women shouldn't be in leadership for various reasons. 
Um, But I was also around people who thought the complete opposite and had lots of women like teaching and leading me in various capacities in church and at work. And Mm -hmm. um, where where I kind of ended up was like when I was sort of weighing the theologies, right? (laughs) Was I was like, there's kind of a risk either way. Like you could be silencing women's prophetic voices if you're not letting them lead or speak. You, or just like kind of uh, squashing gifts in general, right? Like whether it's prophecy or preaching or whatever, leadership roles of any kind or leadership gifts of any kind. But, you know, so then on the other side, theoretically, if there really was this like God-ordained role that women were supposed to serve, something would happen <laughs> if they were women were breaking out of that role and and like violating God's order of things. Like there would be some negative result. And I just never saw that. You know what I mean? Like it was just, it just came down to like my real life. I was like, let's like look at the actual fruit of what's going on in these, in these spaces where women are teaching. And I was like, I really, I like really tried. I was like, <laughs> like as a young man, I was like, I really, I'm going to hunt for something problematic that's actually happening here. Like, not something theoretical, not something abstract, not like, a, oh, this, this, you know, is a slippery slope or this is, you know, whatever. And, and at some point, I just thought to myself, like, this is, this is silly. I can't find anything wrong with this, really. <laughs> and if there are, if there are real, this is kind of like what I said in our, in our episode about queer Christianity is like the real, like, theological textual arguments that go on. Like a lot of them have to do with like Greek words and Bible history and stuff that I don't really like. I don't have a PhD in it. I'm not actually equipped to like determine who's right and who's wrong. What I have to look at is, you know, what Jesus looks at most of the time, (laughs) which is the actual fruit of the theology, like what's really going on in the world and our people flourishing and growing closer to God. So we're going to get deeper into some of the other stuff you said, but I do want to talk about some more like experiences that you've had because you have also had some experiences with um, what we, what is popularly known as the Billy Graham rule. (laughs) So famous evangelist Billy Graham um, kind of famously had this rule that he would not spend any time alone with any women who are not his wife. And what, you know, any individual person who does that, I suppose could have good intentions for that rule um, like for for following that rule, but there are a lot of implications of um, men in leadership thinking that way and following that rule uh, at scale, <laughs> and and I guess in individual churches and and you know even some people would follow it in workplaces. So can you you talk about that, Susie? How has that hesitance for like men to be alone with you? What's behind that? And how has that uh, affected your life in the church? The clearest example that uh, that comes to mind for me with this in terms of my own personal experience is, so right around the time I was graduating from, from university and I felt called to go overseas um, and serve, and I couldn't get a meeting with any pastors. For fundraising. <laughs> for fundraising. And... It finally dawned on me that it was because I was a woman because all of my guy friends were were meeting with pastors left and right. Um, and, you know, married couples weren't having the same issue. And, and they were always kind of really cagey about it. Like once one pastor would meet with you kind of for a few minutes, but like only in the lobby right after the church sermon. And it was really kind of crowded and cacophonous. And as a, as a single woman, you're ultimately just sort of viewed as this potential temptation um, to particularly pastors, you know, men in, in spiritual authority. 
And uh, it just made me so deeply uncomfortable. Right. Because you just feel at that point so hypersexualized. Literally. I mean, like, that's precisely what's happening is you're being sexualized by your own pastor. Yeah. No, literally. And um, in a way, again, it's it's hard to experience just how uncomfortable and just sort of icky that is. And and it was also um, in, in a way that was actually kind of quite familiar to me, unfortunately, having grown up in a country with extremely high... Um, instances of of rape and and sexual assault against women i grew up overseas outside the united states but the same can be true of the united states but i remember you know growing up walking on the street and just having this feeling of like eyes being on me and getting cat called and just wanting to disappear and wishing i could just like wear a paper bag every day and having that same feeling kind of triggered in the context of the church was just so um, so horrifying to me um, and is something that it's taken me a long time to really shake. Um, and so, and again, it, it increases as you sort of come of age in the church as a young woman. If you're in spaces where these patriarchal forces are really at play, you start to feel that, that sense of eyes being on you, of being objectified, hypersexualized. And um, this is something Sai, you and I started to talk about um, in prep for this conversation, but I just wish, you know, looking back, and this is where patriarchy and purity culture and all of that sort of begin to intersect. You know, all of these conversations are so interconnected, but I just so wish that as a young woman growing up in church, in youth, in um, youth group, in, you know, campus, campus meetings and all these other spaces that, that they they would have done a better job of supporting and empowering women to protect ourselves, to not feel like we're being belittled as as you know beings that are that are viewed as only there for for sexual pleasure, um, and and to work through the shame and the guilt and the fear that comes with that. Um, I feel like instead all that we were taught was to cover up and to not be too enticing and and to to not attract too much attention to ourselves. Um, in cases where for myself, I grew up praying that if I was going to be raped, that they would kill me first because I was just so terrified. Jeez. And so they're, they're really dark places that this feeds into um, and, and, and ways that it just – it, it's so dehumanizing of women and and so marring of the ways that women are created in the image of God because I think that sometimes it becomes almost this sort of Orwellian animal farm narrative in the church where it's like, oh, all people are created in the image of God, but some are more in the image of God than others. Right. You know, like all people are created in the image of God, but men are more in the image of God than women. And, you know, and obviously you can add to this the intersectionality of race and all these other aspects too but it just um yeah the things that that does to a person's soul that kind of belittling and dehumanizing um is really dark and ugly and i wish that the church would play more of a role in in restoring hope and and healing in those spaces rather than amplifying those those areas of hurt and brokenness okay so a couple things first of all I'll just pause here for a second and say i and the audience already really appreciate you being willing to talk about things that are personal on this level because it's not easy despite the fact that you're doing it very confidently and in a straightforward way you know the the stuff about not teaching women to like respect and protect themselves is so frustrating in the context of 
like you were saying, rampant sexual assault, which is, you know, was very high in the country that you grew up in, but is is also like not as high, but still very high everywhere, right? And yeah. and yeah. so like the church is teaching women to quote unquote protect themselves by not dressing in too revealing of a way or whatever and effectively accepting the behavior of men, right? Like ex- the the behavior of men is a given it's, you know, boys will be boys and and it like sort of infantilizes men in a way. Like men are just going to behave that way. You don't need to expect anything more from them. Stand up for yourself, like push back at all. It's basically up to you, right? So like leave, it's, it, it is unsurprising that you go to that dark place when you are basically told by the church, you're alone. Like this is just, this is you protect yourself as much as possible by not not dressing in a provocative manner. And it's just, yeah. I don't know, it's like uh, gross in a very profound way. Um, and I and people just don't think about the damage that they're doing by acting that way. And like you said, it is, or like, like your experience demonstrated, it is men and women who like reinforce this constantly in church leadership roles, in youth group roles, in like women's ministry and children's ministry roles, talking to little girls then it's yeah it's yeah. awful. Okay so so let's talk about specifically how this looks in a couple different contexts like how how these patriarchal dynamics operate in the church in churches that affirm women in leadership like that have women as pastors, women as leaders, women able to preach from the spaces are like allegedly egalitarian versus churches that don't because there are differences in dynamics. And I should note here you already kind of uh, touched on this but uh, we're two white people talking about this, right? This is like, oh, yeah, this is no, extremely sure. <laughs> different in contexts that are not the the ones that we grew up in, and 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 so that's uh, we we will we will acknowledge that here. Dynamics are different in other churches, but because white evangelical churches have exported so much of their theology to the rest of the world uh, mm-hmm. and to the church and to not white churches in general. Um, we're, we're, we're talking from our context and that value is whatever that value is to you as a listener. (laughs) Um, okay, now I'm sorry. Now answer my question. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. And I guess unfortunate because having an egalitarian theology where, you know, you, you view that men and women can take on the same kinds of roles and, um, you know, women don't just have to be in sort of servile roles or sort of traditionally, you know, what in traditional gender models would be assigned to women. Embracing a theology that that eschews those kinds of ideas doesn't necessarily solve all of your patriarchal problems. And and the ways that I see that oftentimes are, you know, even if you're in a church or a Christian space that has women in leadership, that doesn't always mean that women are actually allowed to be be change makers in the sense of having the power to make decisions that will actually affect change. Um, it, so they can still be sort of there symbolically in some ways, or oftentimes women are in leadership, but they still really only can affect change as it pertains to other women or children. Yeah, They still m- may not or probably won't have – authority over men. So um, probably the, the lead pastor oftentimes is still a man. Um, and so it just, I see a lot of 
a lot of folks and sort of male pastors who I think want to be there and want to treat men and women equally, but and yet I still see them falling into this pitfall of not being willing to relinquish enough power that it's actually going to be an equal space. Um, and that, again, intersectionality, like obviously you see the same dynamic when you're talking about diversity within your congregation and empowering people of color. So, right. and obviously this is going to be compounded, compounded when you're talking about women of color being in positions of authority and leadership in the church. So that, that dynamic being at play. And this is something I experienced, um, at a certain point, uh, another woman and I, in one of my churches, we had sort of started this ministry together. Um, there was something on our hearts that we felt like was really important to address, and we had gotten together a group, and it started to grow, and my husband got on board and started joining in. And then this older gentleman joined, and he was someone who had been in ministry for years. And all of a sudden, it became very difficult for me to facilitate meetings about this ministry because he would only look at my husband and defer to my husband. Like literally sitting in meetings, he wouldn't even make eye contact with me. Um, And if I made a point, he would address it to my husband as if my husband had made the point. And it was just exhausting sort of week in and week out having to deal with this dynamic to to the point that after about a year of this going on, I finally stepped down and asked my husband to take over because it was more important to me that this ministry continue than that I have to go through this experience of of trying to to facilitate when I wasn't being allowed to do that. So you can have those dynamics. And the sad thing is I don't even think this individual was aware that that he was doing that. And so that also shows space for discipleship that that men need to be discipled out of patriarchy. Because there can be microaggressions that that I think men aren't even aware that they're that they're making, and and so that those things need to be brought to light for them. But I don't think that a lot of men are are even used to having those things brought to their attention. I and I just again, I, patriarchy is something that you have to be discipled out of for men and for women. Because just knowing that patriarchy exists in the church and that it's such a powerful force doesn't mean that you're aware of all the ways that it manifests day in and day out, and all of the ways that you are a part of that. And and Sai, you're so right to continuously point out that women are just as much a part of upholding patriarchy as men are. And again, we're not the first people to say that, but it's so true. I've been one of those women who have enforced those boundaries and tried to put and keep other women in their place because I thought that was, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. That's how to be a godly woman. Right. So it just, there's so much work that we have to do around this and so much that we're not aware of. And, and, and there's so many granular conversations that need to be had, not just up at the high level of like, okay, when we look at our church, are there women in leadership positions? But like down to the everyday interactions, how do those women feel who are in leadership positions? Do they feel empowered? Again, can they make actual impactful changes? Do they have that power and authority? Um, are there times when they feel like they're being pushed back on and put in their place and being belittled and put down? Um, all of those things need to be addressed and, and we need to be on our guard for those things. And I think when it comes to egalitarian spaces, what you're kind of talking about or like the analogy for what you're talking about is like gender blindness, kind of like color blindness. 
Meaning like, obviously race and gender are not the same thing. They don't have the same effects. They don't, you know, they don't function the same way in society. But there's a logic to discrimination that is kind of consistent, which is like, you can have a church where like, or you can have a, you know, uh, a, a business or a neighborhood or whatever, where like legally, technically, black people are welcome. There aren't any black people there, though. And it, you could, yeah. it's the same thing in a church, right? You could say, yeah, women are allowed to be in leadership. There aren't any in leadership, but they're allowed to be. And, you know, and, I, and then I think like a, a view that puts women in specific roles in the church is kind of making this, the, the same like logical mistake of the notion of separate but equal, <laughs> which is, mm-hmm. which is that like try, you're, you're trying to split people up into categories. And, and assign those categories certain roles in society. And you have just like this abiding faith or hope that that will not result in a hierarchy. Hmm. But it's like, it's, it is not a coincidence that when it comes to like those kinds of churches, what roles do men play? What roles do women play? The roles that men play are the ones that have all the power and all the influence. And the roles that women play are the ones like childcare and, you know, being a good housewife who cooks and cleans that men don't want to do anyways and that you know wealthy white women push off on women of color and like i I, you know so the fact that it all shakes out that way isn't surprising to people who like who have you know spent some time thinking about like how discrimination and segregation work um which is kind of it's just like another reason that i reject those ways of thinking is like it is so it maps on so perfectly to the patterns of the world around us Right. It just it is so um, reflecting of the same idols of power and and um, manliness and masculinity that we see all around us. It is too, it looks too much like our culture for me to believe that this like comes from God. And it, it, and it makes sense that you can make that comparison, even though, as you said, gender and race, those are distinct spaces and distinct forms of discrimination though overlapping but it makes sense that you can make that comparison because power dynamics those who are in power (laughs) will will always be to some extent oblivious to the ways that they wield power to the detriment of those who don't have the power and if you split up people into categories like along those lines of power you're gonna end up recreating hierarchies yeah all right so let's talk about something more positive (laughs) Susie. where (laughs) where have you found in Christian spaces real empowerment as a woman? Yeah, so I guess this is the really kind of beautiful part of my story is that uh, the folks that in in many cases I've been most empowered by have been other other men in my life, other brothers in Christ. Um, and, and a lot of times, to be quite honest, it's men of color who have been most empowering to me. Um, and I think, you know, one specific example, my husband, when he and I were dating, as I mentioned before on the show, my husband's Lebanese. He and I met when we were in Lebanon, when I was in Lebanon, he, he grew up there. Um, and then I moved there and we met uh, at a Bible study, actually. And when we were dating and I think already engaged at this point, we were we were sitting down together at one point and he turned to me and was like, so, so what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And my response was basically, I, I thought I would get married and, you know, serve my husband and whatever he felt called to do. And, and so to have, you know, my, my future husband and now husband really challenging me to, to seek out, you know, my own sense of calling and passion and purpose and vocation, 
um, was really at first, honestly, kind of scary because in some ways it's, it's easier to think you're just going to hitch your wagon to somebody else's, but then also really incredibly empowering. I mean, he's the reason that I decided to go to grad school and get, you know, another master's degree and then two and, um, you know, and pursue other things in my life. And, um, he's always been empowering of me in our relationship in terms of us being decision makers together. And that's something that I've had to learn into because that wasn't the theology of marriage that was originally taught to me. Um, cause you know, as a single woman, you're always taking a lot of notes on, on how to be a good married woman. <laughs> I feel like I, you know, I w- was prepping myself for so many years on how to be, you know, a good complementarian, And then to have this you know, this man in my life who who really wanted me to step into leadership alongside of him was so incredible. And then I went to um, an Arab seminary where everyone from the president of the seminary to my advisors to, you know, professors really challenging me to to continue in my studies and, um, you know, to to speak out and to, to preach if I felt called to preach. I'm, I'm not someone who's actually ever felt called to be a pastor. Um, but it's been really empowering the times when I felt like, um, there were folks who felt like I had a message that I had to share and and provided me with that platform to do so. Um, it's because of men in my life that I'm, I'm pursuing my PhD today. And so that's been really incredible and remarkable. Um, can we, can we pause for one second? I don't think we ever actually said on your, this show that you're doing a PhD at Oxford right now. (laughs) Oh yeah. So, so should I not mention that? No, I'm saying so my my point is uh that's that's the extent you were thinking I'm going to spend my life supporting what somebody else does and your husband is like what do you want to do and now you're getting a PhD at Oxford. Like that's quite a turnaround and it's very cool. <laughs> Thanks. No, it's been um yeah, it's been an incredible journey and again, like I remember you know having one even having completed my mass my last masters um, I did my last master's at, at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard, and I was so afraid to tell my advisor in Lebanon that I was applying to Harvard because I was afraid he would just laugh at me. <laughs> and to tell him, and I had to tell him because he was writing my recommendation, and to tell him and have him look me straight in the eye and say, yes, you should do that, was just incredible. Yeah. Um, so uh, just all that to say, like, <laughs> don't assume that the women in your life don't don't need to be affirmed in the roles that they're in um, because we we do need people around us to bolster us up because it, it can be hard out here sometimes. <laughs> um, and you will have enough people who are um, trying to dissuade you and discourage you. Um, but sometimes it's just, you know, those few kind of bulwarks that, that you need in your life that can encourage you to move on and press forward. And that's incredible. That's such a gift. And it's also like you're, you're, this is something I can relate to a little bit as a, as a disabled person is like, you know, you feel all those things that are like, uh, hurt your confidence or hurt your, or your, I don't know, just sense of self-worth. And you're, you're still taught to project, you know, confidence and happiness and cheerfulness and whatever. So it's like, it's, it, it, it can be deceiving, right? Like people may need, um, encouragement who, you would not expect based on their like immediate outward behavior. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's not to say too, I know I've emphasized the role that, that these incredible men have played in my life and it has been women too. Um, 
But I just think, you know, men also have an important role to play in terms of, of empowering and lifting up other women. And I love, I love to see that. And some of it is just role modeling, like your mom. Yep, totally. You also told me that you have found, you found some empowerment just in like changes in your, in your beliefs, like in theological changes that you went through in your life. Can you, you talk a little bit about how you found that kind of uplifting of yourself in scripture? Yeah, so I should say a real turning point for me was at at the you know this the small seminary that I attended in Lebanon, the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary, and um, I was also working with sort of the parent organization of the seminary at the time, and we were doing a training in partnership with World Vision. Um, it's called Channels of Hope for Gender, but basically it's how they work with partner churches to address sexual and gender based violence, which is something that. Um, was a part of my kind of caseload of things that I was doing at my job at the time. And sorry, there are a lot of different threads I tried to tie, to get, tie together there, but it's a small community, so a lot of things happen with a lot of different hats. But the the trainer was this incredible, um, I don't know if he was a pastor, but just this incredible trainer from a, a black man from Zimbabwe. And they brought him in to do this training with church leaders that we brought together and he started in the book of Genesis and worked all the way forward, I think through Revelation, just looking at how um, gender is presented in the Bible and and essentially the ways that that women and those who are perceived as as different um, who don't fit into our you know gendered boxes, how how scripture has been used to oppress them and and the ways that actually we should be understanding scripture um, and disentangling these uh, ugly patriarchal messages from the biblical text. And it was such a, an incredible moment for me because I was one of the people who had brought together these church leaders to learn from this trainer. And then sitting in the first session, I realized that I was the one who needed to hear these things yeah. because I still read, you know, Genesis as this is such a simple, silly thing, but Oh, God created Adam first and Eve was out of Adam. So Eve, Adam must be, you know, therefore somewhat more important than Eve. Like men are somehow more important than women. He used that example. He said, well, if you believe that, technically God created the animals first. So like, how is that a theological, you know, hermeneutical tool for understanding that? Um, and, and just bringing it for all these other like little silly things that I had bought into, even talking about, you know, Eve's role. Again, this is just starting in Genesis, but when the Bible talks about her as a helper or a helpmate, that term Ezer, the only other place you see that in the Bible is referring to God himself. Yeah. That God is our helper. It's it's not a disempowering term. It's actually this beautiful full term. It actually implies, I think, power. It's a really robust term that that does not mean that I think women are second-class citizens and are only there to serve in a secondary role as supporting characters. So just all of these things that he brought us through. And um, I'm still, you know, actively learning how to obviously decolonize my faith and depatriarchize my faith. And um, Depatriarchize. I don't. I was gonna say I don't think that's a word. That's my neologism for the day. But um, you know, and I've I've certainly learned from incredible academics and scholars that we have today, like Kristen Kobes Dumay and Beth Allison Barr. And um, we recently shared in our newsletter 
um, a piece talking about the work of Elizabeth or Libby Schrader, who is yeah. a young academic scholar who's doing amazing work on Mary Magdalene and looking at Papyrus 66, the oldest extant copy that we have of the Gospel of John and changes that were actually made to the papyrus to sort of scrub out and and blur the role of Mary Magdalene in the early church, like really incredible stuff that is changing the way that I read the Bible. And then that lens is changing the way that I view myself and is helping to heal really deep scars that I have because I I have viewed myself as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God for so long. Um, and so, you know, my hope and prayer is that moving forward, we will be able to raise a generation of young women who don't ever view themselves as less than, who see the power of God that is placed in them, who know that they are fully, fully 100% created in the image of God and bearing of his dignity and, and the value and worth that comes with that. A- amen to that. As someone who just had a baby girl, I will... I will. Do you know that? Do you know the 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 stereotypical thing that like Republican politicians do when when somebody like there's been some sexual misconduct and they come out and they go, "As a father of daughters, I object to this." Yeah, I just did that basically. Um, (laughs) I actually I want to pause on this Libby Schrader thing for a minute because it's really interesting. If if you're a Mm -hmm. subscriber, go back to the newsletter. We had recently that has um, the missing Mary Magdalene in the title. Uh, it's but anyways, it, it's this woman's work who basically discovered that the Mary and Martha in John eleven um, are not is not actually supposed to be Mary and Martha in the original. <laughs> right, in, Mind this, in, the, in the story of Lazarus, like that's supposed to be one person, Mary Magdalene, who then pronounces that Jesus. Um, is the Messiah. And so it's just Peter and Mary Magdalene are the only people to do that in the gospel, in the gospels. And um, this is not like some revisionist thing. This is like the people who are like uh, the keepers of Bible translation are now like really wondering what to do about this. Like, do we put a footnote? Do we change the text? Do like, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's not been questioned really. So we'll we'll put a link to a historian who we've also referenced before in the newsletter, Diana Butler Bass, um, kind of explaining uh, Libby Schrader's work and like what 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 implications it has, and and uh, you'll you'll see why it's so inspiring to Susie. Um, all right, so we are going to pause there for now, Susie. Thank you so much for opening up and and talking about all that stuff today. This is a Great conversation, and uh, I really appreciate it, and I'm sure the audience does too. Yeah, no, thank you for thank you for having the conversation, as always. Before we go, a reminder, please go to ktfpress.com, check out the subscription there, get the newsletter, the bonus episodes of this show, support everything we do at KTF Press. We could not exist without our subscribers. We really appreciate everyone who chooses to support us that way. So please... Uh, really do consider that. Also, our next episode is going to be our season finale. It's going to be a mailbag. We're going to answer some questions. We've already gotten some great ones, uh, like Susie said. And we would love to get some more from you all. So please do send your written or voice recorded uh, questions to shake the dust at ktfpress.com. That's shake the dust at ktfpress.com. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see you all in two weeks. When we arrive as immigrants, then you call us citizens, and you welcome us as children home. When we arrive as immigrants, and you call us citizens, and you welcome us as children home.
It's, you know, it can even be sort of like microaggressions that they don't aware that they're doing. Uh, oh, wow. That was in English. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say that again. Oh, COVID. It's, yeah, you're recovering from COVID. It's fine. 